So a lot of college newspapers are starting up again. And after the COVID gap, they're doing so without a print edition. And as a seasoned veteran who came up with ink stains, I'm supposed to say that this is a big mistake, that holding a newspaper in your hands matters, that the skills you learn laying out pages and putting words to an actual physical product is incredibly important. But I don't know. The truth is, college students are learning for their future. And there's no future in print. There just isn't. So if you're a college newspaper editor and you're feeling guilty about this whole thing, don't let the old fogies like me sell you on having to publish a print newspaper. Be forward-thinking. Aim ahead. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times best-selling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Alex Aquisto, the health and social services reporter for the Lexington Herald-Leader, whose recent piece, You Should See What We See, What It's Like Inside Kentucky Hospitals Swamped by COVID-19, is an absolutely brilliant and important piece of journalism. We'll break it down here, as well as her heroic chronicling of a rabid raccoon drowned in a main puddle. This is episode number 223. Let's sing some yang. Okay, Alex, first of all, thank you for doing this. I love I love doing uh, I love having journalists on who I didn't know before. They didn't know me. Like I love the introductory nature of this podcast. And I just want to say I'm uh, I'm searching through your database of articles besides the article I brought you here to discuss, which is a really, really fascinating and fantastic piece about the impact of COVID on Kentucky hospitals. And I found a story. I'm going to say this, the headline, and let's see if you know what I'm referring to, okay? Okay, okay. Imagine Tasmanian devil. Yeah, I mean, of course I know, but that, that story will haunt me for the rest of my life. Wait, wait, wait. I want to read the lead to this, and then I sure. want to get the story. All right, this is okay. amazing. June 18th, 2017. Here's your lead. While jogging on a familiar overgrown wooded trail near her home on a recent warm afternoon, Rachel Bortz thought to herself, what a beautiful day. Little did she know she was about she was about to be attacked by a rabid raccoon. She would end up killing with her bare hands. In the midst of appreciating the weather and scenery, she looked ahead and noticed a raccoon obstructing the narrow footpath, baring its tiny teeth. Suddenly it began bounding toward her, Borch recalled during an interview at her home. I knew instantly it had to be rabid, said Borch, who remembers uh, ripping out her headphones and dropping her phone on the ground. What felt like a split second later, the furry animal was at her feet. Bort said she was dancing around it, trying to figure out what to do. Imagine the Tasmanian devil, she said. It was terrifying. This is the best part. The raccoon sank its teeth into Bort's thumb and, quote, wouldn't let go. Its paws were scratching her arms and legs wildly as Bort screamed and cried. In a matter of seconds, Bort, who could not unhinge the raccoon's jaw to shake it off her hand, noticed that when she had dropped her phone, it had fallen into a puddle in the path and was fully submerged. And then she goes on to drown the raccoon and run away. I love everything about this story. I don't care what you say. Don't fuck up this story for me because I think it's the best story ever. No, I, yeah, okay, go ahead. Oh, why does it haunt you? It doesn't haunt me. I mean, I like it too. I had a lot of fun writing it. It was basically a spot news story. And uh, the local paper, so the Bangor Daily News is where I worked at the time, which is a statewide paper in Maine. The local paper had run a story first with this gal, she was jogging, got attacked by a rabid raccoon. My editor was basically like, go find her. 
and write about it. So my story came two days later and I, I had fun with it because that is, was the assignment and I was trying to relax my writing. I was like, it was my first daily newspaper job. And so I wrote it in my car in probably 25 minutes. And then obviously it's an insane story. And so it took off and went viral. And the reason why I say it'll haunt me is because like, obviously it's very gratifying to have a lot of people read something that you write, even if it's a weird article like that. But over time, it became like something that people associate with me. And so then I would bemoan the fact of, wow, I wonder if anything that I ever write of consequence will actually ever get read as much as this bizarre story about this woman getting attacked by a rabbit raccoon and killing it. So that's why. First of all, I resent of consequence. <laughs> this is, you saved millions of people who uh, might, uh, be, I don't know first of all, that. you basically taught millions of people what to do when you're attacked by a raccoon near a puddle. Sure, you sure. You drown the raccoon. Yeah, uh, definitely. And the thing I love, all right, there's one detail in the story. I swear to God, if I were your editor, I'd be like, this is why I'm investing in Alex. I'm all in on Alex. You wrote, the dead raccoon was retrieved by Borch's dad, who packed it into a taste of the wild dog food bag. Like, you could have just said bag. You could have just said packed it away. But you actually told us it's a taste of the wild dog food bag, which is the yeah. greatest detail, maybe, of all time. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Wait, did that story go kind of viral a little bit? It did. It definitely went viral. Um, And uh, I mean, I think within the first 24 hours or 36 hours, it was read half a million times, which for our small paper in Maine is a lot. Um, And so, yeah, it definitely went viral. It was fun and overwhelming. And then, of course, that that caused a flood of other national outlets to try to get in touch with her too, because it's such an insane story, um, which they did. And I wrote a follow-up the next day, basically sitting at her house while her dad fielded these calls from like CNN, places like that. So it was fun and bizarre. And that was like a summer in Maine where there was a spate of rabid animal attacks on people because it just happens there. This one just happened to be particularly wild. Rachel Bort somewhere right now is maybe she's like on match.com. And she's talking to some guy and he's like, I'm going to Google her and see what I can find. And you see like Facebook page, Twitter account and attacked by a rabid raccoon. And I think if I'm potentially going to date Rachel Borch and I see that she staved off a wild raccoon by drowning the raccoon, I'm all in on date number two. Oh, totally. Also, I have since Googled her name just out of curiosity for me to see like how quickly it comes up. And it's like one of the top things, obviously. She's just a normal person and all these places wrote about her. So she will forever be immortalized for what she did to that rabbit raccoon. As were you for writing the story. <laughs> um, you cover health and, and social services for the Lexington Herald leader. Um, and I found you because you, you wrote this story that came across my Twitter feed, uh, I think two days ago. Um, the headline was, uh, you should see what we see in quotes, what it's like inside Kentucky hospitals swamped by COVID-19. And it's a, uh, it's a great, 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 great story. And I thought really heartbreaking and touching and, and well done. Your lead was um, intensive care unit nurse, Gina Lewis, tried to calm a man in his early 50s with COVID-19 as he waited to be put on a ventilator, shaking all over saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Joy Murphy did her best to console a patient as he gasped for air, knowing she'd exhausted all options to help him breathe easier. Uh, Danita Cottrell's team of ICU nurses did what a scared patient in his 70s asked, and held his hand while he was ventilated as he could no longer breathe on his own. He thanked them for everything they'd done, quote, because he was afraid this might be the last time he sees them, Cantrell said. And to this very thorough, heartbreaking breakdown of uh, what's going on in Kentucky. 
Why did you write? It sounds kind of basic. Why did you write this story? And when you got the assignment or whatever came up with the idea, what was your sort of approach to going about it? I wrote the story for a couple of reasons. One, um, I mean, I've been covering COVID. As you said, I cover public health and social services. Um, and I cover Lexington, but it's also sort of statewide. And I, my sort of focus is rural, eastern and southeastern Kentucky. And so I've been writing about the virus for a long time. We had, you know, surges the same place, the same time that other states did back in the winter. And now, just like other states, it's worse than it's ever been. And, um, you know, in trying to think about new angles to report on, um, especially now that we obviously have a vaccine available. And so the virus and um, it's just like it's, it's a different level of tragic now when people get sick and die from it. And I had seen in other states like Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas, which are a couple of weeks ahead of us in terms of their hospitals being filled to capacity, in some cases overrun, seeing very riveting reporting coming out of there of journalists getting into hospitals, showing what it really looks like, right? Because in the South, we have a fair amount of people who either don't believe that COVID is real or don't believe that it's as severe as people say it is, or they just think that because they're young, they are largely safe from getting a severe infection from it. So again, just like thinking about how to make it as real for people as possible after a year of reporting rising numbers and different things like that, which can even to me sort of lose their taste. Like you, you know that more than 2000 people are in ICUs or in hospitals right now in Kentucky. What does that actually look like? Right. And so trying to figure out kind of just how to write a story as punchy as possible. And I knew eventually I would need to write a story about what it looks like inside hospitals and just sort of figured it was time. And I actually, it wasn't an assignment. I just sort of told my editor, this is what I wanted to do. And he supported me. And so for about two weeks, I kind of scoured social media. There are, you know, when hospitals get bad, you'll have doctors post, doctors who are at their wits end, posts on social media about what they're seeing because they're frustrated. They're seeing death every day. They're seeing increasingly younger people get sick and they want to notify people about it. Say like, please take the vaccine so that we stop having to watch, you know, people in their forties and fifties, in some cases, thirties die. And so I, you know, found a series of doctors that way, asked to be put in touch with other people that they knew at this point in the pandemic, I found providers are overwhelmingly willing to talk just because, again, they're so tired of living with this for so long. And then it was harder, though, to actually get inside a hospital. And so I, um, I've had this job for two years, and I capitalized on a source who I had followed for a different story a couple of years ago in the emergency department in a small regional hospital called St. Clair in Moorhead, which is in eastern Kentucky. Basically said, like, I want to show what it's like when a hospital is sort of at a breaking point with COVID patients, can I come shadow you? And he said, yes. And as things tend to happen, when you report on stories, you're there, you talk to other people and sort of being there in the emergency department, I ended up having some conversations with a palliative care doctor who then, um, you haven't mentioned this yet, but my story ends with basically describing the scene of a family member dying and her family being there watching her die. She's unplugged from the ventilator, they're in full PPE, it's a very bizarre alien scene. 
And I was with him when he explained to them, you know, we're going to take the ventilator out. You can go in and tell her bye, but you have to go two by two. You have to wear an N95. And so like that really, that was exactly what I wanted to show. Um, and so again, you know, knowing that there were people who read the story who either don't take the virus seriously or people who do take the virus seriously and are terrified of what's happening right now. Um, I just wanted to make it as punchy as possible. So it was like a two week process. Um, and I saw that woman die last Wednesday and then I wrote it in, you know, two ish days, which was a pretty fast turnaround for something like that. I would have a bunch of questions. So the, okay. the doctor, you, you, you ended it. I have this, I have markings all over the ending of this story. Um, it's freaking heartbreaking beyond belief. Um, Basically, you wrote, um, in a small room, a few floors uh, above overall is the ER at St. Clair. Seven family members sat in chairs against the wall, crying, holding hands, emotionally bracing for what Dr. John Sanders was about to say. I can only imagine how bad this sounds, and I'm sorry, he said. I just don't think she's going to make it. And I'm afraid at this point that we're prolonging her suffering. I recommend that we stop life support and keep her comfortable. Uh, at the news, one of the patient's adult children shook and sobbed through her mask holding the hands of her sisters on either side of her. She won't suffer at all, another daughter asked. I would not let her suffer. I give you my word on that, she said tenderly. He said tenderly. Okay, so you're there for this. Do you have to, do you, early on, do you talk to the family and say, look, I'm writing about blank. Is it okay if I'm here for this? And then when you're watching it, do you have to keep a certain distance? Like, how do you report, this is the worst moment ever for these people, ever. You're literally there for the worst moment of their lives. How do you report it without being intrusive or being inappropriately lurking? Mm -hmm. Basically, the only way I think I was able to get into that situation is because I was there alongside the doctor. It was him, the one who I quote, um, another hospitalist with him and then me. And when we walked into the room, the palliative care doctor said, basically, are you all okay? If she's a journalist with the Herald Leader, are you all okay if she sits in and just listens? She's not going to use your names. Are you okay if she just sits here? And because they trust him, they trust me by extension. And so that's basically what I did. I sat a couple of seats away. In these situations, um, if I can avoid it, I don't like writing on my notepad. I will just record um, so that I can go back and transcribe it later. It also allows me to be more exact in my quotes. Um, and so that's all I did. And I didn't even, I didn't have to have a notepad out writing. I just was recording on my phone once they gave me permission, just in my top pocket so that I could sit there and be present and observe as intently as I could, but also be extremely sensitive, um, and grateful for them letting me sit there. And in, in my mind, the way to do that was just to kind of sit and observe and to be as least obtrusive as possible. Um, and then again, after, after that, uh, we all stood, not we all, but me and two of the daughters and the doctor stood in the small 15 by 10 room while she actually died. And in that case, I was just literally standing in the corner, sort of out of the way, just kind of watching. Um, and I have thought in kind of hindsight, um, whether I should have probed the family more about what they feel, although I knew what they were feeling because they were obviously showing a lot of emotion and sobbing and things like that. I mean, they were losing their mother. Um, but I mean, you always think back and, and think, what could I have done more? I could have asked them more questions. I knew that the woman who was 67 was unvaccinated. 
Um, I knew that some of them were unvaccinated. And so again, I think it felt best to me to just sit and observe and not even ask them questions. But I, I think, I wonder what I could have done differently. And again, I like to think that I um, was respectful, but I don't actually know. I mean, I assume I was. Do you have to ask them, can I record? Um, I didn't explicitly ask them just because they know I'm a journalist. And so they know that I'm going to use the material. Right. Um, usually I'll, I'll ask to record if I am on the phone with somebody, but just by default, if somebody talks to me like, and I'm in a place where I'm recording, I'm recording basically all the time. Right. And so I did not explicitly ask that. Do you think, um, these people like, uh, so that their, their mother dies. It's not like you're, you're on the ground and you're, and you're watching this all happen and you're covering this. Like, are people feeling regret? Like, are there, I'm sure not all their relatives. I think you mentioned not all their relatives were vaccinated. This woman wasn't vaccinated. This happened right in front of them. Are these people now feeling regret about not getting vaccinated or is there still sets a layer of distrust against the government, big brother, blah, 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 blah. But even that, that, even now, a lot of people are like, well, you know, freedom. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, I think, one of the questions that I think back and, and wish that I had asked. And I sort of go over in my mind of um, how insensitive would that be? And is it even appropriate? I mean, I'm sure if they could control it, they would have wished that their mother could have done something different so that she could still be alive. But I don't know. And I mean, like, I don't know the reasons. And this is another thing I could have asked, but I just, I didn't. I don't know the reasons of the people. So um, the doctor, when he tells them that he thinks the best thing to do is to take her off life support, he says, you know, then he makes a plug for vaccination. Please get immunized, he said. And a couple of them offered up saying like, you know, I have, I have, and not all of them did. And I, I could have asked why, you know, because people have all sorts of reasons for why. Um, and I was talking to the doctor, the sort of a, the COVID units are basically air sealed off and they're all negative pressure rooms so that the air doesn't float into other parts of the hospital. And so there's this giant plexiglass window in the ICU separating like the administrative area from the patient area. And I was sitting with the doctor on the administrative side while they were putting their PPE on to go and say bye. And he was telling me, and I, mean, I said, you know, you, you would think that um, seeing your mother die in a hospital in her late sixties, which is young, would convince somebody who's not vaccinated to get vaccinated. And he said, you know, you'd think that her going into the hospital at all would provoke somebody to do that but it doesn't necessarily, and it might not in this case. And I think that there are some people who are so resistant to it. In reporting this story, I, was, I, I had a conversation with a lot of ICU nurses, but one of them told me, you know, one of the most bizarre things that we continue to bump up against is having patients who are sick enough to be admitted to the ICU with COVID and us telling them that they've been diagnosed with COVID and them not believing us or buying into some sort of deep conspiracy enough to like borderline be delusional about that. Like they believe so hard that COVID is not real, that they think that they are either sick for other reasons or that, you know, the hospital is in, you know, cabal with larger government institutions 
And it's just like, it goes so deep for some people. And so I think some, it could compel them to, but, but definitely not all. All right, wait, I'm actually, this is a great, um, this is a great topic I want to touch on. So I am, I'm from a very small middle nowhere town in upstate New York, very rural. And someone uh, I grew up with posted this the other day on Facebook. He wrote, not many people know this, but I just spent the last 14 days in a hospital with COVID. Uh, no, I chose not to get the shot. My choice, not yours. It was scary. You're damn right it was. But to believe our media and the government, sorry, I don't. I'm healthy for the most part, and I'm home after 21 days of being sick. When they truly give 100% FDA approval, then talk to me. You have your right to your opinion, and I have mine. Blah, 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 right? Yeah. And I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what? Yeah. that's honestly my response. What the fuck is wrong with you? You were yeah. in the hospital for 14 days. You were sick yeah. for 21 days. You're still screaming, I don't trust the government. I don't trust the media. This is You cover rural communities oftentimes related to health in a state, Kentucky, that's really struggling with COVID. Do you understand why people are not believing this is legit? To a degree, I do. Um, I mean, covering rural Kentucky and getting to know different people intimately, understanding that you cannot broad brush the entire region because it's not just full of people sort of who live in rural areas who all think the same way. And so like, I guess I'd start by saying, I'm the first to get defensive when people um, broad brush people who live in Eastern Kentucky to a certain degree, or assume that they all feel the same way about the vaccine or the virus. Right. Um, I mean, it's really complicated. And, and while I, I can understand and empathize with, like there are some people who are distrustful of government institutions for their own independent reasons because they have been disenfranchised to a degree because of experiences that they have had with institutions that are designed to protect them. And so having that lived experience, it automatically makes them more skeptical um, of something that they feel like is being pushed down their throat, even though it's not, it's just public health advice during a pandemic. And so like, I can understand why some people connect the dots that way. And there are other people, and also like, People in Eastern Kentucky get shit on all the time by, you know, the Northeast. It's just like the whole South does. And so this sort of, you develop a chip on your shoulder for understandable reasons of saying, you're not going to tell me what's best for me. I'm going to find out what I think is best for me and then sort of loudly proclaim that and embrace it, um, even if it's in fact not what's best for them. And so it's very complicated and I do understand why some people feel the way that they do. But then I also talked to other people in Eastern Kentucky. I wrote an article in April about um, Harlan County, which is on the very Eastern, almost Southeastern edge of the state about different faith leaders sort of across denominations who were pushing the vaccine and they're very rural congregations. And they were getting a lot of pushback from that. Um, some of them. And so like, what I like to do and why I love my job is because I get to find that that sort of nuance in these areas where I think people just sort of brush off or just assume that there's not a lot of nuance. And I think there's something valuable in remembering that just because somebody in Lexington or somebody in Louisville thinks that these people are being illogical, because like, frankly, our lowest vaccination rates in the state are in rural communities. And of course, that's not a coincidence. Um, a lot of them are also in communities that threw a lot of weight behind President Trump 
um, in his reelection campaign and in 2016. And so it's just like understanding and getting at and trying to empathize with people's reasons um, is hard sometimes, but I can, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying, I can understand why some people are skeptical. It doesn't mean that I agree with them. Is it important that you're from Kentucky? Like, does that I make a difference? So. Yeah, how so? Um, because I know, I mean, like I grew up in Western Kentucky, which is different from Eastern Kentucky, but um, it's just sort of like an automatic kinship. Again, I think in a region that has almost been... Um, like fetishized by a degree, by to a degree by like national media, um, because it's so rural. Uh, I think that it gives me clout, just like it does in any state where a reporter journalist is from the state reporting on the state. It sort of automatically kind of creates that kinship. It's like, okay, well, I didn't grow up in the county I grew up in is pretty rural Western Kentucky. And so I, I didn't necessarily grow up like alongside people who lived in Eastern Kentucky who worked in coal mines, et cetera. But it's just like understanding the type of person that lives in Kentucky. I grew up around the same ideals that a lot of these people did. I was raised in the church. Um, it's easy for me to relate to people over things like that. Um, it's easy for me to relate to people's political beliefs or like to understand them because I grew up around similar people. And so I think, I think definitely it, it gives me a leg up. Do, do you feel like, um, okay. I look at people who don't get the vaccine and I think, God, what the hell? Like it was just stupid, stupid, stupid. Why are you doing this? Blah, blah, blah. Do you feel like to do your job? Well, you need to have a open-mindedness to the idea of refusing the vaccine? Like, do you have to have a, do you have to be open to the understanding of why they're doing it? Or can you still think, God, you're being an idiot and cover it reasonably? I mean, that's really, it's sort of a hard question to answer because like unequivocally, I think that people should get the vaccine. I think it's the best way to protect yourself from the virus. Some people would think that that is an opinion that I don't know, I shouldn't have as a journalist. Actually, I don't know if people would think that, but I, I think it is easy. So my, my challenge, I guess, to myself, this is how I answer this as a journalist is to, what I really strive to do is to empathize with different people's plights, no matter what that is. Um, earlier this month, I, just like a lot of journalists in Kentucky, covered districts, school districts across the state as they were deciding whether or not to mandate universal masking in classrooms before students went back to school. The governor ended up passing an emergency executive order requiring it, but before he left the option up to individual districts. And so I sort of dug into what are the factors that these administrators are weighing, because you could look at it and say, you know, masking, universal masking, even among vaccinated people right now with how transmissible the Delta variant is, is unequivocally the safest option, especially for kids who can't get vaccinated. But it's not that simple of a decision to make. And in fact, more than two thirds of districts opted to, to leave it optional. And so getting into parents who wanted to leave it optional. Why? Because they felt like, you know, I listened to a bunch of school board meetings. 
they felt like that um, it it compromised their kids, you know, ability to learn properly, or their kid didn't want to wear a mask all day, so it affected their mood, or they just didn't want to send them to school in a mask. Administrators weighing, you know, what their parents want, and school boards who are elected by the community, so they have to represent to a degree what the community wants weighing, you know, this is what the community wants, but this is also what the public health department is telling us, which is, again, unequivocally universal masking is best. And so sort of getting into, yes, there are people who have opinions who I know are like contrary to public health advice without, without a doubt, but like still it's my job to understand why people feel that way. And also a lot of people feel that way. And so I can't just ignore them. Um, and also I'm very interested in why people think what they think. And so, yeah, during, during the pandemic, it has, it has been taxing at times and I get frustrated like everybody else. I mean, I have social media feeds like everybody else and I scroll through and see incorrect, inaccurate information that people put there and I get frustrated too. But I think, yes, for my job, I really strive to empathize with people, even if they have what I know aren't correct or informed opinions. Right. I had, uh, I had Kim Severson on this podcast last week. You mentioned you listened from the New York Times. Yeah. And she said um, she covers a lot of the South. And she said one of the things she struggles with, I asked her if people uh, sort of have problems with her because she's gay. And she said she has a much bigger issue that she writes for the New York Times. Uh, yeah, that made me laugh wonder, out loud. Yeah, that was funny. And uh, I wonder, you're in a very red state. Do people have an inherent uh, mistrust of the media? And do you have to sort of break down that barrier either or ever or convince people, look, I'm from Kentucky or I'm trying to do blah, blah, blah here. Is that an issue for you? It definitely is. Um, I think being from um, a local, formerly statewide paper, people know who the Lexington Herald leader is. And, and sometimes people in the state that I bump up against and try to use as sources and stories differentiate between national media and local media. Some people think it's all fake news, but some people do trust their local media and local papers more than national media. But um, I definitely get that pushback, which is why when I go into some of these communities reporting, um, I tried to do so as like a human first, which I know that that's a tactic that all journalists use. Mm -hmm. But I reach out to people or I'll go through local leaders because I know that if I can gain their trust and help them or get them to put me in touch with residents, who maybe if I reached out too cold, they wouldn't talk to me. But if their mayor says, hey, you should talk to her, she's trustworthy, that helps too. Um, I think mostly people, it's amazing how much people will tell you if they feel heard and validated. Um, plenty of people just, if you ask questions, they will talk. Um, if they feel any amount of safe or like you understand or respect their opinion, even if you disagree with it, I've talked to plenty of people who are COVID deniers, and I'll sort of gently challenge them and challenge what they say by what CDC says or something. But I think there's a level of respect that can get me into a lot of places. I think if I just am gentle with people, 
non-judgmental and basically just tell them that I want to be there to listen to their opinion and I want to understand it. That, that helps me a lot. When did you first, so you started at Lexington in 2019 mm-hmm. and you cover health is one of your beats. Like when did you first realize shit, like this COVID thing, this is not just a passing, you know, flavor of the month. Just talking to doctors initially. Um, I remember a couple of people, I, I, I even think like a, a hospital, hospital spokeswoman told me like, you know, there's all this talk of coronavirus, but actually there are a lot of coronaviruses and I sort of think it's getting blown out of proportion. Um, but then talking to not only physicians uh, or like providers, but epidemiologists who were really the ones to sound the alarm and say like, no, listen, this is actually uh, about to be a hellscape. And here's why it was, it was early on, I think, um, probably right as Kentucky diagnosed its first cases, which were in early March of 2020. Um, but, and then sort of predicting what would come after that wearing of masks. But even when our governor instituted the mask mandate, I didn't think it would last for as long as it did. Right. Um, it lasted for almost eight or nine months. So I don't know. I don't know if there was a definitive time where sort of my stomach dropped, but definitely talking to people who who sort of told me why there were red flags and why it wasn't just going away in a couple of months. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and uh, she's leaving for college soon. Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in Royal Retro's ads. Why don't you give him a little break, Casey? Oh, you zip it, Mom. Mrs. Schuster was my kindergarten teacher, and she called me Cassie by accident. And that was when my parents drove all the way from Tamo Road for the class play. And did I cry? No, no. Yeah, no. And do you know why? No. Because there's no crying in a Royal Retro's ad. There's no crying in a Royal Retro's ad. No crying. You got your job. It's interesting. I did, I did not know about this program. It's called a uh, report for America. Um, and it basically, it places, uh, I guess, young or, and quote unquote, emerging journalists uh, into local news organizations. And you, you, again, you came out of Western Kentucky. Um, you started in Maine as a journalist in Maine. Um, I know so little about, I was doing my quick Google search report for America. How did this put you where it put you? Yeah, so a little plug for RFA here. Report for America is a fairly new um, organization, and basically it was launched by some former journalists as an alternative to, you know, it's no secret that uh, media, especially local media, is not in a great spot. Um, Ad sales, which is how we used to get our primary source of revenue, have plummeted, print sales have plummeted. And so Report for America sort of... uh, came up with this funding model, which isn't entirely new, but on the scale that they're doing it, it sort of is, where they, um, through a series of grants, et cetera, will pay part of a reporter's salary to put them in with a local news organization that has cleaved staff or covers an area where there's a topic that's undercovered. The RFA will pay part of their salary, and then they get a community organization to pay a portion of their salary. And then the newspaper they work for or media just outlet pays the other portion of their salary. So it seems like a sustainable way to continue funding local journalism. So 
Um, the Lexington Herald Leader is owned by McClashy. McClashy pays for part of my salary. RFA pays for part. And then a local organization here in Lexington pays for part. And so I moved away from Kentucky right after I graduated. Um, I went to Western Kentucky University and, and moved to Maine, as you mentioned, and lived there for almost a decade. And so before I moved back here in 2019, I'd never worked as a journalist in Kentucky. Um, and I, I started in 2012 writing for some very small weekly papers in Maine along the Maine coast. Um, and then sort of through this like slow burn, it's something that a lot of people probably experience where they move away from their home place and eventually they want to go back to it. That was very much what happened with me too. But when I left Kentucky as like a cynical early post, post-college graduate, I really didn't think I would ever come back. I wanted to live somewhere that was not Kentucky. Um, and I came to this position, moved here in May of 2019. You know, it was a slow burn thing that kind of began in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. And uh, through a combination of reading about coverage in Kentucky from afar and feeling like it lacked the nuance that I know was present in the state because I grew up around people in Kentucky. I knew how they thought and felt. Of course, we're not a monolith, but like, I just felt like it lacked something. And I think that there can be good national journalism covering local, local places. But through this like slow burn um, thing, I just started to think I, I actually wanted to move back here and be a journalist. And so I was part of the second wave of RFA reporters. I'm technically a third year now. Um, and I'm in my final year of RFA, which means I'll have to get a job that's not funded by RFA next year. But yeah, I, and, and so I cover health. I, I, when I was in Maine, the last beat that I had was covering the state house and I covered their department for community-based services. Theirs was DHHS. Um, and I got into covering a lot of child welfare issues. There were a couple of children who died as the result of abuse that had brushes with DHHS and not enough intervention. And so um, understanding health and public health and social services to be such a broad beat and how desirable it was to me to cover that in Kentucky sort of propelled me to apply for this position. Um, and then I got it, obviously. And I have loved it. Wait, so once this year is over, is your job done? Uh, yeah, so the, goal, the, the intention, the hope is that your host newsroom will hire you on. Um, but yes. After so it, it's next June, I believe, is when it when my third year is up. So, so it's like June, yeah, June to June. Like, is there any inclination, any idea what's going to happen? <laughs> no, not right now. I mean, no. Um, if I were the, I'm actually, just saying, if I were the New York Times or Washington Post, I would come in and freaking swoop you up as quick as I could. I truly would. Um, and maybe, maybe you don't want to leave. Maybe you don't want to leave, but I would be all in on. Uh, out of Alex, my family. I just think you're freaking great. I really do. Thank um, you. Thank but I just want to say, I read a story I really liked. Um, you wrote a, an, an opinion piece uh, last March, 2020, actually. Church and state uh, converge at Kentucky's foster care crisis. And at the time, the governor of Kentucky was uh, Matt Bevin, very conservative, uh, sort of Christian fundamental, blah, 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 blah. And you're at, you attended this, um, this meeting uh, about sort of 
um, adoption, adoption in Kentucky. And the, there's this debate over whether uh, it's obviously a national debate or in many states, whether uh, gay couples should be able to adopt. Mm-hmm. And you're covering this, you're at this meeting and um, Bevan is speaking. And you wrote, then Bevan took the stage asking rhetorically, how are there 153 kids in this county waiting for a forever family? And then dropping his shoulders, he asked the crowd if he could digress. There are people who want to undermine this, he said. There's a newspaper in this immediate region, and I won't name their name, but, but it rhymes with Schmerold Schmieder, which is kind of funny, actually, they said that. And their only interest in this effort was to try and find problems with focus on the family and the kind of people who they imagined were going to come, at, come here and the kind of way in which they would or would not approach what it's like to open your home. That's the only interest they had. Maybe they're here, Bevan said, scanning the crowd, looking for me. This prompted others to look too. I felt fairly identifiable, one of the only people without a spouse or kid sitting cross-legged on the floor. I waited for someone to point, but no one did. That sounds awful. Like that sounds like an awful, awful moment or no. It really was. I mean, I've never been singled out quite like that. I mean, like everybody, most people have been to a place where there's politicians like, oh, the media's over there. I mean, Trump used to do it. Let's all point at them and shout things. But I was the only journalist there as far as I knew. And I've never been singled out certainly like that. So for a second, I was like, shit, is somebody going to follow me to my car, basically? Um, not that he was inciting violence, but I mean, he, he pointedly called me out. So no, it, it did make me nervous for a second. But then I quickly sort of that transformed to, to the events, um, which I haven't read that in a long time. So it kind of sounded new when you're reading it. it was at a church. Um, and this is why I love Kentucky. I, I love it by I mean like I'm fascinated by it because uh, Bevin is obviously the governor at this point. He's Republican, but he is uh, involved, has invited Focus on the Family, which is a notoriously anti-LGBTQ organization, just like problematic in a variety of ways, to help uh, recruit foster children to because the state has a tremendous number of kids that need a home in Kentucky, and so. And Kentucky is a very religious state. And so he is targeting a specific group of people to try to help solve this foster care problem. And so I had asked his office earlier that day, you know, focus on the family um, does not believe in same sex marriage explicitly. So I had asked, you know, are you all only trying to seek heterosexual couples as recruits basically for fostering kids? And that was the question that had set him off. Um, and so that's why he pointed me out. And it was never explicitly said, but I am nearly positive that any sort of queer couple would not have been comfortable in that environment. Um, but writing that essay was actually a, a, an assignment that we had to do through RFA. And I, I liked it. It was an interesting assignment. Yeah. But yeah, that sort of indistinguishable line between politics and religion. My favorite line is uh, you called um, the governor's spokesperson, Elizabeth Kuhn, and she responded by email. It is shameful that the Herald leader is intent on politicizing these events rather than focusing on the fact that they support more than 9,700 children across the Commonwealth who are currently in and out of healthcare. I would challenge you to actually attend one of these events for yourself and see the difference they're making in our lives of children across our state. And then you're like, all right, asshole, I will attend your event. And you go to the event and they call you out of the event. I know, I know, I did. Um, <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was fascinating for that reason. And that, that is just how, that was how the relationship was with the press and governor Bevan. I mean, it, that was always frictious like that. 
Yeah. But yeah, I went because it was good. It's like, you know, I'm not saying that she had a point, but I would love to go to the event. So yes, I did. Um, Are you fearless? Do you get nervous? Are you a, you go to awkward moments, you go to awkward events, you go to places where people aren't going to be happy to see you, blah, 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 blah. Can you walk through the fear? Do you have any fear? Do you get nervous about it or no biggie? I don't get nervous anymore. Um, I was very shy growing up. And um, I mean, there are times over the last couple of years where I have to do something very intense. Like one of the the event that immediately comes to mind is when I was working in Maine for the Bangor Daily News, there was a very gruesome murder at the hands of a young 20-something man in this very well-to-do coastal Maine town, and he killed his mother and grandparents in this, like, horribly horrific way. Um, And the town was small, and so people knew who they were, and the Boston Globe, this is a regional paper, was covering it, and my editor wanted me to go to the father of the son and the husband of this now dead woman uh, to go to his house and knock on his door and basically talk to him. Um, and oh. I, I, that was very hard, but I did. And Wait, time he out. let me in. Yeah. Go yeah. I know. I want to hear about this. So you, um, you walk up to this door. Okay. Mm-hmm. You have to knock on this door. I've done this too. Knocking on doors is I always equate it to being on a plane with really bad turbulence where you assume you're going to be okay. You're probably going to be okay, but you're not hundred percent sure. No. Right? All right. You knock on this door. What do you I knock on the door and I'd, I'd actually written him a letter because I was going to leave it in his mailbox as opposed to knock on the door because I, I could not, it felt insensitive to me and I couldn't fully rationalize being there as a journalist at this moment in time. And so I had the letter in my hands. I knocked on the door I was like probably visibly shaking. I know that my voice was shaking and he answered it. And I was, I, I apologize immediately. Um, but I was like, I, I'm so sorry that I'm here. Um, I was going to leave this in your mailbox. I saw your car in your driveway. I decided to come up. I cannot imagine what you're going through. I am here with the Bangor Daily News. And I know that many people care about you and your family. And I wanted to know if you could talk to me for a couple of minutes because I know people want to know how you're doing and how your son's doing. And he sort of paused and he was like, you know, come in. And at that, at that point I had a reporter's notebook with me and I stupidly did not record it, but I was just like scribbling notes down. And he, he talked to me for probably 30 minutes. I cried while he talked to me. He didn't even cry, but I cried. Um, just at the short of shock of being there at the shock of like not understanding how a human who had just gone through his wife being killed at the hands of one of his sons would possibly let a journalist in to talk to them. And so like this swirl of gratitude and like horror and like deep human emotion and empathy. And then I wrote the story and, you know, we were the only outlet in Maine who had an interview with him and it was valuable and I don't know how it made him feel, but I know that, you know, I heard from people in the community after, and I know that he got an outpouring of support as a result of it. But it was definitely, definitely that turbulent feeling of just like my stomach was dropping. I was sweating. It was not pleasant. Wait, so when you're crying, I've certainly cried in interviews, too. It, no, no, I'm not making fun of you. I've cried. Yeah. In too. Is that OK? 
is it okay to me or is it okay to him? Or like, like, oh, is it okay to, to cry during an interview? Is it okay for a journalist to cry during an interview? I think it is. Um, you know, where are we told that journalists shouldn't feel the emotional plight of the people that they are reporting on? I think that there can be a fine line, right? Because we are not advocates. But for example, when I was reporting this COVID story and I wrote about this woman dying, I cried in the ICU while she died. I don't know if her family could tell because I was wearing PPE, but it's like um, part of what I love as a journalist is getting to bear witness to the, the best parts of my job are getting to bear witness to, you know, the depth of the human experience, which like not to sound trite, but that's a beautiful, oftentimes emotional thing. And so I think it's okay to cry in interviews. I thought after I talked to him, I wonder what he thought about that. If it made him more comfortable talking to me, knowing that I was having an emotional reaction, I think that it would for me, but I don't, I don't know. I think it's okay to cry in interviews. Wait, Alex, I think it's one of the craziest things of this profession that like we have a notepad, a pen, a recorder, whatever, maybe a little badge that says who we are, or a card. And I'm allowed to ask you the most personal questions yeah. that your friends wouldn't even ask. It's yeah. insane. It's this weird, unwritten thing that I have yet to fully understand. But I I know it's totally bizarre. And it's also bizarre how many people will just like answer you and talk to you back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So wait, Alex, I have to ask. So you, you cried when you knocked on the door, you cried at the ICU. Did you cry learning of the death of Rocky, the raccoon did that? Uh, (laughs) No, I didn't. But like, no, I didn't because he was like trying to harm a person, but I was thinking like, Jesus, I don't know if I could, even if an animal was attacking me, I don't know if I could actually kill it, you know, like press on its neck and suffocate it. I did think about that, but no, I did not grieve his death. When this show is over, let's have a moment of silence for, for Rocky. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a final question. Do you, um, you're covering COVID. I'm out here in California. It's fairly liberal, you know, blah, blah, blah. Very large percentage of people, shots, blah, blah, blah. But I'm really starting to get a little bit hopeless about this thing ever going away. Mm-hmm. Um, you cover health. You know a lot more than I do. Is this thing ever going away? I guess like define going away, right? Like it will not always be as bad as it is. Um, I know in Kentucky, like some epidemiologists in the state look at our peak as happening in like mid-September, but I don't think that COVID will go away. I think that it will um, become not as like top of mind, but I think... (laughs) as long as there's a big swath of the population that's unvaccinated. I mean, the scarier thing is like, okay, we have the Delta variant now. If the virus continues to mutate, which people continue to get it, there will be other mutations of it. And so someone told me the the other day about like um, something Dr. Fauci said, and I I haven't heard this about like it being around for another year, basically, if people need to wear masks, which I hadn't heard. And like, I mean, I have to admit that is... I don't want to live with it for another year either. So I guess in short, it will go away, but I don't think it's going to go away in the sense of like, nobody really ever thinks about the flu. At least not that many people do. Right. I think it'll be a long time before it's at that point. Let me ask you a final, 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 final thing. Um, You graduated college 2010, right? Yes. All right. So you're 16 years behind me. I graduated in 94. 
you can't, you came at it from a different era than I did. Like when I came into journalism, I got my first job at the national Tennessee and there were a lot of newspapers I could work for. I moved yeah. up the ladder. Oh. I got a job at sports illustrated. Like it was all right there. You saw mm-hmm. what you could do. You're working for this program now where you really have no idea where you're going to be next year, mm-hmm. where the money's coming from, blah, blah, blah. I mean, should people get into journalism? Oh man, what a great question. Uh, I hope that my answer will always and forever be yes, but I wonder if it will take increasingly a different type of person to get into journalism. I mean, no journalist, probably even when you graduated college, got into the profession thinking, wow, I'm going to make so much money doing this, you know? Um, But yeah, I think people should get into journalism. I think uh, always they should. It's a, it's a, obviously a different industry than even a decade ago. It's a bleaker industry because, you know, my paper has fewer resources than it did a decade ago. It no longer employs hundreds of people. Um, we sold our massive building that used to be downtown for 30 years because we don't have enough people to house it. But I still love journalism and it's always going to be a necessary thing. I think it only gets more necessary so yes, in short, please go into journalism. In fact, I would encourage people to. Good answer. And I just want to say again, I know I just said this. New York Times, Washington Post, wherever, I would hire you in a second. I just think you're freaking really, really good at this. Thank you. And um, yeah, I hope this gives you some exposure actually. So I- um, Yeah, me too. Yeah, I appreciate your time a whole lot. Um, I really do. And I th- again, the, um, the story was fantastic. Uh, a real deep dive into what it is. And I also thought what was good about it it would, it's easy to kick Kentucky and Mississippi and Tennessee and different states like that. And I feel like you didn't make an effort to do that. You made an effort to explain what's going on, but you weren't trying to kick people or denial or uneducated, yeah. or Ill, ill-informed. I think that's really good. Well, yeah. And if I can say, um, I mean, I get frustrated at people who choose not to get vaccinated also. And I think for me, as somebody who writes about it all the time, it's always on my mind and being in a room with somebody, you know, Again, having frustrated frustrations at the large swath of the population that uh, is refusing to get the shot is one thing. And it's easy to just feel a lot of anger toward them. And it's easy for me to sort of go down that path, too. But I think and not again that anybody who's unvaccinated deserves to die. Not at all. But I think it it retethered me back to understanding that it's a very complicated choice for a variety of people standing in this woman's room, knowing that she was unvaccinated and she had other comorbidities, but COVID is what killed her. And so like understanding that just because she made this choice doesn't mean that she deserved the outcome. Right. And maybe that's obvious to some people, but I I think sometimes it's not. And it's like, it's just, again, it's why I love journalism is because it just gives you this inside look and helps you see these other sides that maybe you wouldn't otherwise be forced to see. It forces you to live through other people's experiences. So. I agree. Well, Alex, thank you so much for doing this. Seriously. Thanks for having me. I want to thank today's guest, Alex Aquisto, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Aquisto A and read her work in the Lexington Herald Leader. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.